If there was only one thing that differentiated a startup, I would say the most valuable skill it could have would be accurate assessment of discovering undiscovered talent. A startup is faced with the choice of betting on undiscovered earlier talent or betting on proven but maybe less exceptional talent. And I would say nine times out of 10, it is better to go for the former. Betting on unproven people who you think have the potential to grow where their slope is steep, even if the Y-intercept is still early on. Welcome to In-Depth, a show that surfaces tactical advice founders and startup leaders need to grow their teams, companies, and themselves. I'm Brett Burson, a partner at First Round, and we're a venture capital firm that helps startups like Notion, Roblox, Uber, and Square tackle company building firsts. On the In-Depth podcast, we share weekly conversations with startup leaders that skip the talking points and go deeper into not just what to do, but how to do it. Learn more and subscribe today at firstround.com. For today's episode of In-Depth, I'm thrilled to be joined by Jack Altman, co-founder and CEO of Lattice, people success platform that helps companies tackle performance, engagement, and development. Prior to launching Lattice, Jack was the VP of Business and Corporate Development at Teespring, an e-commerce platform. He was also an early-stage venture capital investor earlier in his career, and he's currently an active angel investor. I've known Jack for years, and I've always been impressed with his approach to building and scaling businesses. There were so many topics we could have gotten into as it relates to startups more broadly. But the place we decided to dive deep on is exec hiring. This is a huge challenge for founders and one of the most important things to get right post-product market fit. Given that Lattice recently closed its Series F round, Jack is at a unique spot where he's farther ahead, but not so far removed from the early stage journey, which means that his advice is still super tactical. We start by talking about how the hiring profile for executives changes as the company grows. Jack is a strong believer that you should focus on hiring someone who's a great fit for the next 18 to 24 months, not the next five to 10 years. He also talks about traps of hiring too big, whether that's over-indexing on big co-experience or focusing on seniority and titles that don't match your startup's current challenges. Instead, Jack shares more about why founders should focus on getting good at assessing and taking a chance on more junior undiscovered talent. He also tells the story of a few of Lattice's early executive hires to illustrate what this looks like in practice. Next, we dig into his end-to-end hiring process, from how he sources folks and what he asks in interviews to why he sometimes does references on a candidate's references. Whether it's diving into how a leader might build out their team or the red flags that signal that an executive candidate doesn't have an ownership mentality. Jack shares tons of tactical pointers here. We also get into where executive hiring errors come from, as well as the leading performance indicators to look for and what to do when a new executive leader doesn't work out. We end by chatting about promoting internally versus hiring externally and why you should think about your executive team like you're structuring a portfolio. 
I really hope you enjoy this episode and now my conversation with Jack. Well, Jack, thanks so much for joining. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So over the course of the conversation, I thought the place we would start would be what you've learned and how you approach exec hiring. And I think it's maybe one of the most underappreciated parts of company building. And my own view is that once you get to some level of product market fit and you begin to scale, I don't know, more than half of your job as a CEO sits inside of the exec team. Maybe we can start with some of the different frameworks or ideas that you figured out as you've built your executive team over a long period of time. There's this great post by Ali Raghani that talks about the different moments in time and the three stages of a CEO. And like what you were saying, you start out by building a product and getting customers. Somewhere around, let's say, 30, 40, 50 employees, you hopefully have enough traction and you hopefully have a product that's connected with enough people that now your job as CEO becomes building the company that builds the product and sells to customers. And there's two parts of that. One is having a clear plan and communicating that well. And then the other part is having a company that's able to execute those plans. You want to point the ship in a good direction, and then you need a ship that can, in fact, head in that direction. And having a strong exec team is the main vehicle through which a founder CEO is able to do that. So what you're looking for at different stages is really different because when your company's 40 people versus 200 people versus whatever else, it's a whole different set of skills. The executives that you're looking for throughout the journey as you build the company change. And it's important at any moment in time to find execs that fit the stage that you're going through. And the faster you grow, the shorter duration you'll typically be able to keep execs in the same role. This won't always be the case. There are definitely people who can run a great engineering team when there's 15 engineers and 50 and 100 and so forth. But you'll often need to make changes. And often people want to work at different stages. I've heard the analogy that a company's leadership team is like painting the Golden Gate Bridge. By the time you get from one end to the other, you often have to go back and start repainting right away because so much has changed. I think it doesn't always go that way. Of course, you'll find execs who can go through long periods of time. But in general, I would say look for execs that you think are going to be the right fit for you for the next maybe 18 months, 24 months. That's the mindset. And then if it works for longer, that's great. But that's the thing to key into. In terms of what you're looking for early on, I think one of the easy mistakes people can make is going for execs that are too quote unquote big. It's really easy to get enamored by leaders who have worked at these really big companies and have had IPOs and have done these hugely impressive things on paper. And they are hugely impressive, but they're totally different than what a Series B startup needs to be doing. And sometimes people can come down and go back to a very early stage, but it's a different sort of work. Early stage executives might not be still the ones who are moving pixels or closing customers themselves or designing every piece of ad copy. But to be successful, they have to be in the details, early on especially. I think you're getting at a couple of interesting points. Other than thinking about the job to be done as an 18-month window versus a 5- or 10-year window, what else do you look for at the Series A or Series B stage when you're thinking about what great looks like from an executive perspective? I would say there's a few things. Probably the most important, if I had to pick one, 
is who are they going to hire? What's the team that they're going to build? Let's say you're hiring a VP of sales for the first time. You're looking for somebody who is going to build a great team first and foremost. They're probably not going to have a lot of infrastructure. They're probably not going to have a big bench of recruiters around them. They're not going to have lots of process that they can lean on. So one of the most important things that I like to talk about is who have you hired? Walk me through your process as you went and recruited those people. How did you convince them? What was your angle? What were the stumbling blocks in the recruiting process for someone great? How did you get over that? But really going into detail about how do they recruit? Because I think at the early stages, that certainly is the most important impact that they'll have. There are other considerations too, of course, around people. So what sort of manager are they going to be? This is going to be a culture carrier. Is it going to be aligned with the spirit of your company? In terms of mindset, I would say that if I had to boil it down, you want to find the leaders where they are going to really have a deep ownership mentality, which is like one of these trite things that everybody talks about. But I think you know it when you see it where somebody is so invested in what's happening and they see themselves as so accountable and so responsible that, for example, you would never hear them make a complaint about, ugh, someone didn't do this thing because they're like, well, I'm the one who's in charge. I've got the empowerment to do what I need to do. So anything that doesn't work, I'm going to take accountability for and I'm going to drive that. You almost want them to feel like late co-founders, I think. You talked a little bit about this in the sense of how do I identify somebody that's good at hiring? What about in this ownership mentality? And we're going to talk a little bit more about the exact hiring process, but if you're sitting down with someone or referencing somebody, what are you doing or what are you asking them to get to your own conviction that this is somebody that is going to have a spike in ownership? I think there are some classic red flag type of things. For example, one thing that I really like to do in any interview is ask people about their last job or last two jobs, depending on how long the stints were. And I like to really go deep on what were the big projects, and I really like to pull on those threads. So I would ask them about what was your role like when you got there? What were you brought in to do? How did it evolve over time? Tell me about some of the big projects. What were the biggest successes you had? What were some of the biggest things that didn't go the way you wanted to? And then I'll ask why and I'll ask what. I'll pull on those many, many times. And I think in the process of really teasing apart what they've done in their last role or two... You'll hear the language that they use and you'll hear the focus on why things went well or why they didn't. And are they self-reflective of this didn't go the way that we wanted it to because I didn't do something that now looking back, I've learned and I could have done something different. Or is there a mentality of, oh, well, this counterpart of mine didn't do what they wanted or we didn't have the budget we were supposed to, or the founders were setting things up for failure in these kinds of ways. And those things might be true, and there's always obstacles, and it's never one person's success or one person's failure, no matter what happens. But I think that mindset really comes through in the language people use and what they focus on when they go through those stories. So that's the most reliable thing that I've found to try to suss that out, is to just ask them about the stories of what they've done and pay attention to the lens that they have on it. To take a step back, something we didn't really talk that much about is where to source from and who to focus on. One of the things that I've noticed is that early in a company's life, and this dovetails slightly with what you were talking about in terms of overhiring, but the nuance in terms of what I've observed is that founders tend to overhire from a titling perspective. They effectively hire someone who is maybe less than a perfect fit, but is more senior and does fit that C-suite better. 
as opposed to hiring an up-and-comer who you might actually be able to recruit and grow into the role. Because effectively, when you're a Series A company, and a lot of people don't know you, it's very hard to land the perfect candidate with the exact experience from another bigger company. So I'm curious how you think about that question of where to focus and what level of seniority to go after when you're initially building out the exec search bench. I completely agree with that point. And I would even say if startups could have only one special ability, if there was only one thing that differentiated a startup, I would say the most valuable skill it could have would be accurate assessment of discovering undiscovered talent. Because exactly what you said, if you're a Series A company, you can't get somebody who is both absolute top of their field all the way through and has tons of experience because those people are now at a point in their career where they're getting C-level jobs at public companies and it wouldn't make sense for them. So in general, a startup is faced with the choice of betting on undiscovered earlier talent or betting on proven but maybe less exceptional talent. And I would say nine times out of 10, it is better to go for the former. It's better to make your own assessment and make an investment in a person and say, hey, this person maybe doesn't have the experience. They haven't seen exactly what we're going through, but they're extremely smart. They've got great intuition. They're very hungry to grow and succeed. And they're the only sorts of people investments that I've really seen pay off for early stage companies. When I go back and I look at Lattice's first 10 employees, for example, my co-founder and I were like 26 when we started Lattice. And that was probably around the average age of the first 10 employees. Looking back, it was an incredible group. Many of them still at Lattice, many in leadership roles who have really grown with the company. But it wasn't like we started with people who, if you pulled up their LinkedIn's, it would be these super obvious profiles for the roles. Through interviews and through spending time with people, we took bets on people. And I think that extends even for when you're hiring your first executives. I think you can strike a somewhat different balance once you're going up into the more leadership type of roles and you will be able to attract people a little bit further along. But I think the same principle applies. And I think in general, building the muscle of becoming good at finding talent that's not obvious on paper is the much more important and the much more likely path to succeed. Can you bring that to life and maybe share a couple early executive hires that illustrate this point and what the story is behind them? how you found them, what they looked like at the time, and what that first year looked like once they joined you. So one of the most common hires that you'll hear founders ask about, which is a hard one, is early marketing. How do I get my first marketing leader? What am I looking for? What is this profile of person? How do I find it? How do I attract them? It's really hard. And great marketing is obviously critical for startups. And I think as the world has gotten noisier and there's so many SaaS companies for every little thing and just startups in general, I think marketing is a critical breakout. So how do you find that first marketer? You're not going to find some big name VP level person from some already super successful company. So what do you do? We hired a guy named Alex, who Brett, you know, who joined us a year into starting the company. And he had had marketing experience. He had worked at a marketing agency. So he knew a lot of marketing fundamentals, but he was early in his career. He was a few years out of school. He had the traits I was describing before, enormous ownership mentality. He really felt like a clear owner of what we were doing. He was extremely eager to learn. 
He had very low ego mixed with high conviction in his ability to discover things, which I think is a critical trait. He really had what I would actually describe as like a real founder mentality to things. He would try lots of experiments at once. He was willing to do a decent job at a lot of things at once so that we could test tons of marketing programs. I don't think he had hired people before, but then he came in and he figured out how to do all of that. And he ended up becoming a manager and then a manager of managers and an exec at the company and stayed with us for over four years. He ended up going on to start his own company. But hiring that sort of profile and taking a bet on somebody who you think is going to become an extremely good marketer as they grow with your company, you're both more likely to find that person and they're more likely to be successful. So that's the sort of profile I'm talking about for the early stages, betting on unproven people who you think have the potential to grow where their slope is steep, even if like the y-intercept is still early on. I think this is a good time to spend some more time talking about what your end-to-end interview process looks like. And maybe it's today or maybe it's back then. But obviously, a big part of making accurate hiring decisions, particularly in undiscovered talent, is that assessment piece because you don't have a resume or a set of credentials that are a proxy for ability. So would love to learn about how you architect an exec hiring process end to end. Hiring is one of those things where doing it well requires just an unbelievable amount of time. And I use the word unbelievable, meaning like people literally won't believe you when you tell them how much time you spend recruiting. Lattice is over 500 people today, and I probably still spend over a third of my time recruiting. And an actual third, probably spend 15 hours a week recruiting. And I've always done that. And part of that is because you have to meet a lot of candidates in first passes. But part of that too is because a good interview process If someone's got a shortcut, I'd love to hear it, but I don't know of one other than a lot of time with somebody. In the same way that once you start working with people a lot, once you've worked with someone for weeks or a month or months, most of us know now, all right, this person is really great for the role and they're super talented or they're not. And time gives you a few things. It gives you the serendipity of seeing things arise that you might not have even thought or known to ask about. It gives you the chance to see them in a lot of different dimensions. So can I see what happens when they're a little stressed or if they're struggling with a problem or what happens when I'm talking to them about something that's deeply within their area of expertise? Do they take credit for things or do they sort of share credit when they can? Do they solve problems privately or collaboratively? There's a lot that comes up as you clock hours with people. So early on, we would try sometimes not just to do hours of interviews, but we would even sometimes say, hey, do you want to work with us for just a week as a consulting thing? We'll pay you, but let's get 40 hours together and see how that feels. Obviously, you can't always do that. And depending on where the candidate's at, they have a different job or something like that. It doesn't always work. But a spirit of we're going to spend a lot of time together in order to figure these things out, I think is a baseline critical part of a good interview process. Another thing that I found really helpful, and there's different schools of thought on this, but I find trying to give people fabricated exercises is not nearly as useful as workshopping with them current real problems that you would start with them if they joined the company on Monday. And that can look really different in different cases, and it might be harder to do for some roles than others. But I think in general, you can talk with people about real world existing current business problems And that'll give you such a different tactical feel for what it's like. 
once you as the hiring manager, whoever that is, has spent sufficient time with the person, personally, I believe it's really important to have them spend a lot of time with the teams they'll be working with too. So other leaders around the company, maybe the people who will be on the team that they work on, but you want a 360 perspective because different people are going to identify different stuff. So I think that's an important part too. And then the last thing I would say is I spend a lot of time on references. I think a lot of people do, but I think I lean on them pretty extensively because I know that particularly as you grow and you have more people, you just can't put the number of hours into it as you can when it's early. But references are amazing because you can talk to people who worked with them for years and who know what you're trying to know. What's hard about it is you often don't know the people you're referencing. You're talking to people who, if I, Brett, were asking you about somebody, I know you and I know what you value. I know what you think good and bad look like. I don't know the majority of the people I'm talking to when I do a reference. So you do have to take things with a grain of salt. Sometimes you have to, this will sound a little crazy, but sometimes you do references on the references. If you get a confusing reference where you can't piece a story together, sometimes you do references on the references. But in general, you're trying to build this constellation of whether I'm talking to their direct reports or their peers or their manager from the past or maybe a board member, trying to get a sense of what those people valued and then really trying to tease out particulars from those people. Before I ask a few follow-up questions based on what you shared, Jack, can you stitch this together and explain how this actually looks? Maybe think about an exec hire you made in the last year and what those different pieces look like in what order? An executive that I would meet now would have been typically, not always, but typically brought to us by an exec recruiter that we work with. I never would do an executive search without using a retained exec firm. I would also source candidates of my own, but I'll always have that going as well. So let's say it gets brought to us from this person. It's already vetted. They've already spoken to exec recruiters who I've got a relationship with, who know me and who know Lattice and know what we value and all of that. I've also spoken to the recruiter about the candidate and I've researched a little bit about their background and I've heard some of the texture of their work history from the recruiter. So I've got a sense that's not just a superficial LinkedIn sense. I know a little bit of color commentary. And then I would have a first meeting with them. And typically in the first meeting, I'm selling. So usually the first meeting is for me to convince the candidate that this is an opportunity worth them pursuing and taking seriously. Because in the interview process, it's more time consuming for the candidate than for any one individual on the recruiting side, because they're not just going to spend time with me, they're going to spend time with other leaders and people on their teams and our board and whatever else. So my meeting number one is me selling. The way I sell is I'll tell the story, I'll explain why we're doing what we're doing, what our mission is, how we're trying to pursue it, what some of our big initiatives are and our goals what's happening in the world of the role that they're talking about and what we would want from them and why this is exciting. And I would leave them a lot of space to ask questions. And then I would try to answer whatever I could for them in that first hour. If there's time, I will lightly start the process of learning more about them. But if there's not, from those questions, you can learn a lot about people. So I am trying to lightly suss out what I like a second call here during the first call, but primarily... My objective in that first call is convince the candidate that this is worth their time and that they should stay in the process and be willing to give it 10 plus hours potentially. So that's meeting number one. Assuming they come away still interested and I come away still interested, we would do another call and that would still be me and the candidate typically. And that would be 
I don't want to say the tables turned. That makes it sound a little bit antagonistic, but this is now me learning about them. I'm typically trying to understand their experience. I'm feeling out them interpersonally through all of this, but this is the one where I'm really trying to suss out what have they done? What are their skills? Where are they at in their career, in their interests, in their goals? Where are they strongest? Where do they have gaps? The outline for how I typically like to run these is I'll start with their current or recent job. I basically just have them take me through the story of, it doesn't have to be like a complete exam, but like, let me in on what really happened. I'm looking for some realness in there. You can feel when there's this switch flip, when you go from, I'm telling you what I just did at my last job, like a interview to now I'm trying to get you to tell it to me more like a friend. And I'm trying to break through a little bit of the ice and the formality. And I'm trying to pause the story and click into something interesting and get the person out of their shell a little bit and start talking to me for real about what did they just do. And in that process of really trying to understand not just the headline bullet points of their job, but what were your Tuesdays like? What happened to you when you had to reorg your team like this? And what was the tough part? And how did you manage the comms of that? And When you needed to bring in a new leader over an existing manager on your team, how did you run that process? And what did that look like? And were you able to retain the employee? And what were you scared of? You're a sales leader. You had a big goal. What did you think going into it? What did you need to do? Who were your counterparts? What were your dependencies? So I would just try to pull that all open. And in the process of going deep with people, I think that's where you tease out a lot of skills, interests, style. How do they think about themselves? How do they solve problems? And then if there's time, I would try to keep going back multiple jobs, but often those are sometimes less relevant. But one or hopefully two jobs I would run through like that. That's step two. And then depending, we come away strong from there. Then there's a couple things. One is I would spend real personal time with the candidate. That might be a dinner. It might be going for a long walk. It might be having coffee, but ideally it's in person. If you can't do it in person, which that's been the case often in the last couple of years, maybe you just try to do more casual Zoom or phone calls or you start texting. Then I'm trying to get to, all right, now I want to suss out, do you mean this person get along? Is this going to be an easy relationship to have? Then from there, I would go into meetings with a panel. So that panel might look different depending on what the role is, but it would be some combination of their peers, our board, and their direct team. There might be three to seven interviews of those sorts, depending on the role and levels of conviction and all of the rest of it. And then the candidate and I are hopefully talking the whole time. We're texting, we're doing calls, maybe we have check-ins in between them and we have debriefs. And then at the end of that process, is when the candidate and I get back to our one-on-one time and we start either talking, hey, let's start thinking about really what it's like to work together or we're realizing that it's not the right thing. References, I do early and often. So I'm doing references that whole time. So that's like a layer that's happening throughout the whole process with a concentration at the end often, but I'm trying to do them throughout if possible. Can you talk specifically about how you run them and are there different types or do you have a specific set of questions that you're always going to in your own process? The most important thing to remember about references is that you are talking to a biased party. You're not talking to somebody who's objective. This is double true when the reference was given to you by the candidate. They're checking first, hey, I'm looking to have somebody speak to a future potential employer. Are you willing to talk to them? Obviously, you're only going to make that introduction if the person's like, yeah, I'm going to go to bat for you. That's what you're up against. 
you're in a situation where you are trying to learn, hey, I'm interviewing Brett and Brett has now given me a reference from somebody that he's worked with for a long time who thinks highly of him and wants the best for him and who has agreed to take this reference call. So that's what I'm up against. How do I accurately learn about Brett from this person? That's the first mindset that I think is critical. There's a few ways to get through that. Obviously, what I want to know is the basic questions of what's this person like to work with? What are their strengths? What are their weaknesses? Maybe I want to check are the things that they took credit for, is that indeed how it went? Are there stylistic things that are unusual about them? Are they one of the best you've ever worked with in this role? How do they compare to others? So I'm trying to figure those things out, but I'm up against a biased party. So there's a couple things you can do there. One is you can actually disarm the conversation directly. I've done this when I felt like I was dealing with a particularly biased, but a particularly valuable person for the context they would have is to say, hey, look, this is how references go. You understand that. We all kind of know this dynamic, but it's really important to me. And it's really important to this candidate who you care about that we don't just try to get to a yes. We try to get to the right answer. If you can put your biases aside, try to like give it to me as straight as possible. I'm just trying to figure out, will this be a good fit? And it's better for this person who you care about too, if we actually get to, is this a good fit? I've actually found that that just breaking the fourth wall, call it like it is, and just acknowledge it will let people take this break and say, I'm not on stage right now. I'm just trying to help people get to the right answer. Because if I don't get to the right answer, I'm not helping anybody. So that's one thing you can do. You can also just remember to take every piece of praise down a couple of notches. So if I say, how good was Brett compared to others that you've worked with in a similar role? Was he in the top 50%? Was he in the top 25%, the top 10%, the top 5%? How would you stack Brett up? A great reference, the answer to that question will be, oh, none of those, top 1%, top number one is the best I've worked with, or him and one other are the top two, but these are the best. Medium reference would be, yeah, probably top 10. Even though if someone's actually top 10%, that's good. And a reference them taking that choice is okay. And if someone says top 25%, at that point, you're like, I've got to knock that down a couple pegs. So there is the idea that remember to turn the dials down on whatever you heard. And then the last thing that you can do to break through this bias stuff is to really force detailed answers in the same sort of pattern as you do with a candidate when you're asking them about their history. In general, what I've found is the way to get down to someone's substance on a topic is to just keep poking at it. And it can feel a little uncomfortable and a little annoying because you're just keep teasing at this thing. They think they've answered the question. And now you say, I want to follow up on that. Can I ask you about the specific thing? Can you go a little bit deeper? But that's where you get the real answers. Have you ever hired someone after a pretty negative reference? And if so, what did you learn about their actual performance? I've never hired somebody where the references were all lukewarm. I have hired somebody where the references were a mix of stellar off the charts and not so hot. And I think there's a couple kinds of references I would describe as not so hot. One is the kind where it's just a very tepid, lukewarm, I'm not that passionate about this. They were just not effective. That tone, depending on who said that, that's tough. What's easier to get through is someone who says in their own way, yes, they were really shockingly effective, but it was not a style that worked for me. And they were too goofy at work, or they wanted to do things in their own silo, or there's versions of this where the reference will be a version of it wasn't for me. I can't blame the results, but this person wasn't for me in these ways. And then there's also cases that I've had where I've done a reference, sometimes with another founder about a role. 
And it doesn't make sense to me because every other reference I've done is good. And then I talked to this one founder, maybe it was a couple jobs ago where it was just not good. For whatever reason, that call was odd. I've then done references on the references there and learned that maybe that founder was a really difficult personality or something like that, or the candidate was actually being really respectful when they were describing the way in which they left the company to me. And then the founder was giving this abrasive story about it that wasn't accurate. So you do need to do a little more diligence sometimes. And you're like a bit of an investigator in those kind of situations. The kind of reference that scares me the most is the really lukewarm and really dispassionate reference. That would be the worst. Why is that? It's not like there was a stylistic difference. It's not like there was some deep contention. They just found them ineffective in a vanilla way. And I think the truth is in any given company, there are a lot of people who are not particularly effective. I think there is a real distribution of effectiveness inside of a company. And if you actually looked over the shoulder of every employee at a company and you just looked at their contribution up close with a microscope, you'd see a really wide difference. And I think where they get a lot done and where they're really impactful employees, they don't always work well together. Teams work in certain ways together. There are certain cultures where those people are effective. So you're looking for people who are both effective and will work in your particular environment. But someone who's just not shown an ability to be particularly effective, and it's not because of any odd contention, I think I just get more turned off by those sorts of references. This may not be necessarily just related to references, but how do you think more broadly about picking apart someone's own abilities versus the system that they're operating with at any point in their career? In the sense that, take a sales leader, a sales leader selling Slack in the first year when there's all these people that are clamoring for the product is very different than a sales leader selling something that no one's ever heard of. There's no brand awareness, et cetera, et cetera. And broadly, my worldview is people generally undervalue the system and overvalue themselves in almost any context. But do you think about that as it relates to execs and what is their ability to actually drive an outcome versus the system or the tailwind in which they're operating? So much. And this is such a good question. Two thoughts on this. One is exactly what you said. The people who are, for example, let's say an AE, a seller, somebody who's out there trying to just convince customers to buy the product, I would so rather have the seller who was at the number two company and did well anyway, or the number three company and did well anyway, than someone who just hit quota at Slack or at Zoom along the way. When you're on the winning product team, it is so hard to tell, did those sales close because we all use Slack and Zoom and it was really just how do I get through your security questionnaire and those sales jobs end up being a lot like order taking? Or were you really trying to convince a customer that despite the feature gaps and despite the brand that this other company had, and despite all of these other disadvantages, you should still go with our product and let me tell you why. And it has to do with our future and our vision and how we can use things in this particular way and how we're going to meet your specific needs. But it's the real art of selling. And to me, I've just found for a go-to-market role in particular, I've had much better luck finding people who were at good, but not generationally exceptional companies and made it work. And I think this is true for many other roles as well. However, I will balance this. I think it is good that there has become a sentiment in Silicon Valley to not try to overbias on professional pedigree, like, oh, you worked at Stripe, you must be amazing. They very well might be. Stripe is full of amazing people. But 
it's great that Silicon Valley has gotten to a point where that's not the main thing that we key in on. So I do love the experience of working in a company that wasn't great. The hard experiences are where people grow and where they really earn their chops. That said, there is this other thing too, which is particular with executives. You want people with good judgment. And part of good judgment is personal career judgment. You do also want a career arc that shows that over time, people were able to make good judgments for their own career and were able to join companies that did in fact do well and to take on roles that were good fits for them and to put themselves in positions where they could be successful. The other side of this coin is I don't want to knock somebody for working at Slack or Stripe or someplace like this. I think in the ideal world, you have somebody who has spent time early in their career working at companies that were solid, but not the number one and made it work anyway, but then over time got themselves into roles where they were at companies that were leaders and they figured out how to make those kinds of judgment calls too. And I do think there is a correlation there. So that's the other side of the coin is if you can, people who have proven the ability to do both of those things is good. So zooming back out again, over the years as you've been hiring executives, when you look back at most of your hiring errors, or you hired somebody that didn't work out, is there a thread or set of things that tie those mistakes together that now is a strong part of the way that you run your process, maybe in a different way or something that you keep in mind? It's a good topic because executive or not, no one hires perfectly. You can't possibly get perfect information before you start. And there's contexts that change rapidly when someone gets in. Startups move so quickly that if you interview somebody in May and they join in early July and they're ramped by September, what you thought they were going to work on, that project might have been canceled by now, or you might have realized you want a different focus. So there is a lot, both between those kinds of changes in the startup side and between the fact that you just can't get to know a whole person, even in a 15 or 20 hour total interview process with someone, you just can't know anything. I mean, that's only a couple days of work in total time spent. People need to go into hiring knowing that a 75% success rate would be extraordinarily good. Most of us part with way fewer people than a super rational analyst would tell you to. Maybe someone got 60% of their hires, quote unquote, like super right, and they part with 5%. And so that means that 35% of the hires they made are people that they didn't get super right, but that they didn't part with. I don't think hiring and parting ways is this epic failure. I think the most epic failure is hiring and not parting ways. And I think a lot more time and attention should probably go to that than the mishire process. If you're too afraid of mishiring, you're also going to miss the unproven people that you took a bet on. And it wouldn't be a bet if it didn't come with risk. In the same way that as a venture investor, it's not a failure to have a reasonably high percentage of your seed investments not work out. In fact, it's a sign that you're doing things right. I actually believe the same thing about recruiting. The starting point is that it's not this failure. It is part of the game. That's an important headspace to have as you're going through it, is that you're making investments and you are taking some risks sometimes because people are surprising and we can't predict the future. There are a few types of hiring mistakes that all of us have made that I think you learn from. One thing that I think is really, really important as any hiring manager 
is that at the end of the process and at the end of all the input and all of the thinking and feedback you've gotten and the references and your peers and maybe what your own manager thinks or what your board thinks, you need to own the decision at the end and you need to really own it. And I don't just mean that you need to take accountability for it because obviously any reasonable manager is going to take accountability for the decision, but you need to make a decision that you wanted to make. You need to feel in your bones that this is the right thing to do and you need to not do it because other people told you to. And one of the reasons why that's so important is because with some decent percentage of the time, it's not going to work out. And when that happens, it's just so frustrating if you didn't listen to your own instincts. You know yourself, your intuition really matters. It's easy to make this mistake where you're not sure and you defer to the crowd. And it's really important not to do that. So that is one diagnosis I've had in the past. I think another I've made is when you're growing quickly, you can feel tempted to just close the role and to just get it done because you are often enduring a lot of pain. And this is something that people don't always see from the outside is when you're 30 people and growing super fast, it's unbelievable how busy a founder is in that situation. Unless you've been through it, it's hard to fathom how many things are coming at this person and how little resources they have to deal with it. If on top of all of your other work, you also don't have an engineering leader, and in addition to trying to talk to customers and managing a bunch of people and doing lots of hiring and maybe talking to investors and you're doing media stuff and Lord knows what else, but on top of that, you've got to manage nine engineers directly because you don't have an engineering leader. You're just like, I cannot possibly do this. The next warm body I'm going to take. And it is really easy to get into that mindset. And that is a trap. That is a really ripe situation to compromise and to make a hire that you shouldn't. That's one example of the moments. It's probably the most common example of the moments when you are weak and not going to stick to your hiring principles. That's another source of error. Maybe a final source of error is you want to hire for the next 18 to 24 months. Lattice today is 500 people. We shouldn't be hiring people where their sweet spot is 10,000 employees. And that's how they know how to operate because it's just not going to match up well. On the other side, you do need to hire ahead a little bit. And this is where there's a little bit of art and judgment and it's a little bit of a balance. But by the time the person starts and onboards and gets comfortable and gets to know the company, your company might be twice as big and the needs might be totally different. So you do need to figure out how to time the person's comfort and stage to the rate of growth that you're having. And that's definitely a mistake I've made during fast growth periods is not hiring ahead far enough. One thing I wanted to spend some more time on is the topic of letting people go and when to do that and how to do that. And maybe one place to start would be when you hire someone, how do you figure out what great looks like in the first few months? And how do you balance giving the person a chance to build context and understanding with getting things going and delivering results? And I think with exec hiring, it's particularly important to know when to let someone go because the cascading mess that can be created is staggering. You have a sales leader in the wrong role for a year. They might have hired 20 reps, burned a ton of capital, et cetera, et cetera. So curious, maybe we could start it by what you think excellent looks like for an incoming executive that might give you a sense of whether this is a star or whether you have a problem. There's two phases of the onboard. And they're demarcated by the switch that flips. And basically what I'm referring to is when you get in for your first, let's say 30, 60, maybe up to 90 days, you really want an exec to be learning. Often 
in a startup, hopefully if you're in a position where you're hiring some new execs, things are usually going at least somewhat well. Most of the time, not always, but most of the time, you're not looking for them to come in and tear the house down and start fresh. You're looking for them to build on what's already there. A great exec will come in and the first thing they will do is basically nothing. They'll listen, they'll learn, they'll understand the lay of the land, they'll get to know the people, they'll start to build trusting relationships, they'll understand how information flows around the company, they'll try to understand what's been working well in their function, what's not been working so well. They're really going to learn. They're going to take the time to get a feel for things. And they're also going to get a feel for what decisions need to be made. Maybe during the interview process, I learned what the founder thinks is most important or what some other peer of mine thinks is going to be most important. But now that I'm here and I'm the VP of product, what do I think is most important? Now that I know the people a little bit, I know how things have gone. I've talked to a bunch of customers. I've gotten a feel for this company. What are the most important decisions I, as this head of product, need to make in the next year? How am I going to move the needle? And I think that takes a little bit of time and a little bit of patience. And you can also get really easily trapped as a new exec because you want to make an impact. You want to start contributing right away. You're seeing all these people around you doing stuff and moving balls forward. And it's actually really hard to sit on your hands, particularly if you're somebody who's had a very ambitious career and that's what you're used to. And you're like, I might've just taken a little break in between jobs and now I'm here and I'm not really making decisions. What am I doing? But I think it's really important that new executives take the time to do that and to get the lay of the land accurately. You can't make good decisions before you know what's happening around you. So that is one hallmark of an exec that I think is super effective is they really are controlled in that beginning phase and they control themselves. They control the situation. They keep things moving at a pace that makes sense. They know, all right, there are a few light things that I need to do just to keep the lights on. And I can tell the difference between those and the big decisions I don't have the context to make yet. I think that's what you're looking for. And I think the way you know that is in a new exec's first month or two, you should always be spending a good amount of time with your executive team. But as time goes on, you'll have stretches where you are not as close to an exec's day-to-day work. And it's better for the exec, it's better for the founder. But in the beginning, you want to be close to people and you want to be spending lots of time with them and talking to them and brainstorming and hearing about what they learned and helping sharpen their picture on things and giving them insight into what's on your mind. And you'll know that someone is doing well in the beginning, even before they've started making decisions and contributing by how quickly are they grokking the situation around them? Are they understanding what matters? Are they understanding how the different players work? Do they have a sense of how the product team or the marketing team or whatever is going to fit into the rest of the company's strategy this year? Are they learning at a good rate? And then you can also tell by the way that they're fitting in with the people around them. Are they building good relationships? Are they earning trust? Are they figuring out how to find light ways to help other people out around them? Are they building strong rapport with their team? Those are a couple of the things. I guess also still talking about the first couple months of an exec's role, sometimes you will have a clear handful of tasks, whether it's making a couple of really important hires or we need to get this one particular thing launched. And you can say to the exec, before you have context, I've got context and I promise this thing is worth doing. So just do this as you're learning. And often in a project or two like that, you can see, all right, this person's able to pick up what we're doing and execute it really fast. So those are probably some of the things I think about in the first couple of months. One of the other really difficult aspects I think of letting folks go is how you choose to communicate that with other people inside of the company. 
And I think that there are many different schools of thought to this. And I think in some ways it's based on the culture of the company and the scale of the company. But I'm curious, how have you approached that over time? And I assume wanting to balance the respect for the individual that's leaving with some level of transparency or directness or honesty with the people that are staying and anything come to mind for you? I don't claim to have a perfect answer to this. And I don't know that there's a right or a wrong. This is one of those topics where I think there's probably a right or a wrong, depending on what your company culture is like. I think having a general approach to this that resonates with the rest of your values and your culture and the style of working that you have is the right way to think about it. Like I could imagine companies where it was a super impersonal thing. There were no secrets. Nothing was veiled about it. It just, yeah, we let this person go because they weren't meeting these clear goals that we all abide by. And that's what that was. And there's probably cultures where that works. At Lattice, I think we are at our core, very, very employee centric. And this is a good example of a place where that culture shows up is how do you choose to handle those situations? To me, I've never been interested in making an example out of everybody. I don't find that to be something that resonates with my own values. I wouldn't want to be treated like that. I wouldn't want to work at a place where other people were treated like that. So for me, the kind of company that I want Lattice to be is one where when we make these hard decisions, we do as much as we possibly can for that parted employee to have the transition experience go the way that they want it to. So my preference is always to talk to the employee about, hey, we are going to make this change, but I want this to happen on your terms. We can have some flexibility on timing and messaging and communication sequencing and the rest of it. And there are moments and there are other people who would say there are trade-offs to that. And there certainly are. It's not only a positive way that I would recommend every company do it. But for us, that to me is the clear way to handle things given our culture. So I would take it on a culture by culture basis. Zooming back out slightly, when you think about an exec that at some point you've questioned whether they were the right person, if they were performing, if you had to part ways, have you found that a decent amount of the time that when you called things into question, the person actually made a turn and were hugely successful? Or when you look back at your own questions and doubts, they're entirely spot on. And maybe they're spot on because you had a good sense, or maybe it's confirmation bias. And once you call someone into question, it's very hard to be open-minded enough to actually see them change in performance. But curious with your own judgment or instincts around talent, how often when you're questioning something, do you end up being wrong? This is a really interesting thought. Now that you asked this, I think I believe something different than the generally accepted wisdom. I think the generally accepted wisdom is once you're having doubts, it's over. Once you're having doubts, 99% of the time, it's not going to work out and that person's wrong. And once you're asking, it's over. I think it sometimes is, but I'm now thinking back on examples of even people who are still at Lattice and absolutely thriving today of two-way conversations I've had with that person where either they were like, oh, I don't know if I want to keep doing this. And you know, maybe I even said to them, well, if things stay like this, it's not going to be successful for anybody. And this is with highly trusted employees where I've got a long relationship, but that's happened. And all the people I'm thinking of right now, which is not just one or two, are here and doing well and thriving and happy. And I have seen it many times. I think what has to happen though for that to happen is an internal fire needs to be reignited and a new spark needs to be there. Not a fire like I'm going to work hard. A reaffirmation and almost a recommitment and a new mindset. So these are cases where it's not like the person doesn't have the talent and the ability. It's just a matter of do they want it? And part of wanting it is bringing 
a certain enthusiasm to the work and a certain discipline to what they're doing and a certain way that they interact with others around them. And yeah, I guess I have seen it. There are moments when a hard conversation can be a turning point. And it's just like in a personal relationship. If you think about a close friend, a family member, a significant other, I think those relationships too can have turning point moments when things were headed in a direction that we might not have wanted. And you talk about it and you recommit to why your relationship is so valuable to one another and why it is a good fit. And you can absolutely come through that. Something that you mentioned earlier on that I believe in strongly is this idea that you should be focusing on hiring somebody that you think can be exceptional for 18 to 24 months, not five or 10 years. I'm curious though, when you look at the execs that you've hired that have scaled beyond that, what was special about them? Or if you diagnose, what was going on that allowed them to go far beyond that? I think it's two things. One is that they approach problems somewhat first principally rather than through a playbook. And they are interested in what other companies do. They're interested in what best practices might look like, but they're going to make decisions about how things should work based on a whole host of inputs. And they're ultimately going to make their own conclusions about things. And I think that is a very different approach than the, I'm just going to read books or what did they do at name some great company? What did they do at Shopify? I'm just going to copy paste that here. So I think people who approach things from a first principle that I'm going to decide for myself at all times, that is a critical input to someone who is able to be successful at 25 people and 200 and 500 and so on. So I think that's one. The other is open-mindedness and flexibility. Anybody who is going to scale with a fast-growing company for three or four or five years is going to undergo not just so much change over the years, but month by month it's going to be different. Whole projects that were a priority last quarter are no longer a priority. Org changes that completely upend the model of what their days look like are going to happen. They're going to take on completely new responsibilities that they never even thought of when they joined the company. They're going to give up responsibilities that they held dear in the past. There's just going to be so much change. And the people who are resistant to change or Whenever a change comes up, their first instinct is, wait, but what we're doing is good. Why are we doing this? And are constantly resisting. That doesn't work. It just ends up being too abrasive for themselves, for the people around them. You almost need to invite change, I would say. Those would be the two is thinking from first principles and high openness and even excitement for change because those things are going to happen. And you can't possibly scale through all of the ebbs and flows if you're resisting. Do you look for that in the interview process now? And is there particular points or ways that you get at that? I think the first principle one I do, yes. I think I do try to identify in the process of asking them about the big things they do. I try to ask why they made the decisions they made. I'm looking for them to have a really clear explanation of the logic for it. We segmented out our go-to-market org into these four segments and these territories, and here's why. And the reason why is not because that's what my boss told me to do, or that's what these other companies do. That's the standard. I read it in a book. They do it because we learned by doing deep customer research that the way customers buy below 1,000 employees and above 1,000 employees is really different. And the result of that is that we need a different type of sales training and sales enablement in those two different segments. And we're going to hire a different profile of seller for those. And therefore, we're going to need different leadership for them. We're going to need a whole different system for onboarding them. So we decided to break that up once we got into the enterprise because of these reasons. 
those sorts of explanations for why decisions were made is what you're looking for, as opposed to, I did it because it looked like the right answer on the test. So I do think I still very much look for that. And the way I look for it is give me the, I don't care who said what, you tell me the reason for why this decision was the right one. Something we haven't talked about that I'm super interested in over the course of Lattice's history is how is your thinking about internally promoting someone into an exec versus hiring externally changed, if at all? Do you have any worldviews or approaches to that? One thing to remember is you're building a team. It's not just individuals. You're building a team. So you want to think of it like constructing a portfolio. A good leadership team for a company is going to have not just people who do the different functions, of course, but different perspectives, different backgrounds. In my view, you want a mix of people who are the super strong up-and-comers mixed with people who have deep expertise, who have seen a bunch of rodeos before. And I think assessing that balance in your team and wanting both of those ingredients is really important. I do think it's important to bet ahead on some of your executives. In general, the larger the company gets, the harder this becomes because there are these prerequisites to holding a C-level job at a company of a certain scale. At some point, it requires enough prerequisite experiences that it's hard to ask somebody to grow into those quickly enough who doesn't have a lot of the stepping stone, at least experiences that prepare you for that. So it does get harder, not impossible, but it gets a little bit harder to bet quite as far ahead sometimes. But early on, especially, I do think you really want to do this often, not even like a couple times. I think you want to do it often just to take a swag at it out of a eight-person exec team at a Series B company with 120 people. I'm just making up a story here. I would hope that at least three of those eight executives were internal promotions or people that came in as a director level leader, and then you put a bigger bet on. And I do just think that mix of perspectives, also with the context that those people have. A lot of these are people who have seen the company grow from its earliest days and stayed ahead of the curve and learned a lot. Like You want that DNA in your leadership team. They're just going to have so much rich context. Also, by the way, it's good for culture. It shows other people that you're a company that will bet on internal talent and will give opportunities to people as it's appropriate and they've earned it. And I think that goes a long way too. From a tactical perspective, do you run a normal exec hiring process and consider an internal candidate? Or you need to short circuit it or manage it in a way and very early on decide, let's say you're hiring a marketing leader, I'm actually going to promote from within. I have done both. In one instance that I'm remembering, there was somebody who we were on the cusp with about promoting them from a management role into an executive role. And it was an extremely talented person who was phenomenal culture fit. It was just a real bet ahead in terms of experience. And I did, in that juncture, engage a search firm and met other candidates and ended up deciding to go with the internal person. So I have done that. And then other cases have just made the promotion without meeting any candidates because it was an easy choice to see that this person could do it and was ready. And I didn't need to go out and run the search because we had someone great right there. So I've done both. Is there anything you've figured out when you have an internal candidate who throws his or her hat into the ring and you choose not to put them in that seat that increases the chances that they'll actually stay and be productive? Because I think a default scenario is somebody wants the top job, they don't get it, they're disgruntled, and then they end up leaving. Sometimes that'll happen. So sometimes when you hire over somebody who really wanted the job, there's just nothing you can do and they're going to leave. 
And it might even be rational for them too. It might not be. Sometimes people's egos are getting the best of them. Sometimes people actually are being rational to say, look, I'm at a point where I want to run a design org and I'm ready to run a design org. And if you want to hire a VP of design over me, I'll respect it, but I'm going to go somewhere else where I can be in charge or I'll do it here. So sometimes that's reasonable and there's nothing you can do about it. What I've often found though, personally, if you can involve the person in the process of hiring their manager, and this goes whether they wanted the top job or not. This also, by the way, flies somewhat in the face of a lot of conventional wisdom. This is not necessarily the most common recommendation. A lot of people will say it's too awkward for people to interview their manager and they're going to have all this bias and it's just going to be uncomfortable and they're going to try to put like a wet blanket on the process and all this stuff. And there's truth in all of that. But I've just found that trusting people to be adults and to say, look, this is important. Your relationship with this person is more impactful to your life than it's going to be to mine as the person's manager. So I really want you to have a voice and I really want you to be part of this. I've found that 80 plus percent of the time people are really responsible about that and really appreciative. And in my view, including people in the process of hiring their manager is a benefit. And this is not what most exact recruiting firms will tell you to do or what most boards will tell you to do. So I could be off on this one, but I've always approached things this way. So maybe to wrap this up, I'm curious, who's taught you the most about this craft of hiring and building an exec team, if anyone comes to mind? And is there anything that you glean from them or that they explain to you that's been really valuable outside of some of the key ideas that we've discussed in our conversation? There are a lot of people. I think team building, obviously, is one of the most important jobs of the CEO, and it's a core competency. So I think anybody who finds themselves in this role should really treat it like something to improve on, and it's a real discipline, and you should treat it like a serious part of your craft. So you should be looking for advice from wherever you can, other founders. The very best source is going to be founders of companies that are a stage or two ahead of you who have been through what you're trying to go through and can give you the real talk on it. There's obviously other sources too. If you've got investors who have got a lot of experience with it, those can be good. Your own execs can be really good, actually. Particularly as your company grows, you'll start to get to hire execs who have hired a lot of execs of their own, who you can thought partner with on a lot of this stuff. So I think that becomes a source of wisdom too. For me, one person who I definitely have asked the most questions to is Saji, who's the founder and CEO of Benchling. I think he's exceptionally strong at thinking about exec recruiting how to do it, what to look for, how to convince people, how to triangulate on their experience through references and what they've done in the past, how to go deep with people. So Saji's definitely the person who I've asked the most about who I think is just particularly phenomenal at this. And his company is a click ahead of ours. So I've at each stage been able to ask him things like, hey, you're a year or two ahead of where we're at. What can I glean from you as somebody who has gone a little further down the path and come tell me like, hey, there's a tree in the way there, watch out. And is there anything that he taught you or insights that you glean that sit outside of what we've covered thus far? One thing that he has shared with me over and over, which I think he was very right on, is he has encouraged me to try to hire for profiles that are much more experienced than I might think I have access to or that I might think I need because the exponential growth of a startup is so unintuitive and the mindset that yes, you're hiring for 18 to 24 months ahead, but don't forget how different your company is going to be in two years. And you really need people who are two years ahead of you now. That's what you're looking for. And I think that has pushed my thinking in terms of the backgrounds and the experiences. 
this is for once you're in real growth scale mode and you're adding hundreds of people a year that you really want to start bringing in, not necessarily for every role, but you do need people in the company who have real scaling experience at a level beyond where you're at. And with that, the scaling will go a lot more smoothly and without it, it'll just be a lot more painful. So I think just the focus on really getting people who believe in your future growth and really stretch towards what that's going to be for the candidate. Great. Well, thanks so much for spending all this time with us, Jack. This was a lot of fun. It was a pleasure.